But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Morning. We're going to start with a picture of my school. Everyone always wants a Warrington story. This one's not specifically about Warrington. You may be glad to know this is about, uh, it's about a science class I had when I was in high school. And we had, we had an experiment. I don't remember that. I use experiment in a loose possible sense. Um, but we're doing an experiment. We had, we had a Bunsen burner and we had some kind of liquid or material of some kind. And the idea, I, I don't know what the idea of experiment was, but basically you had to, you had to stop it getting too high a temperature, otherwise it basically exploded. And inevitably, within a few minutes, you hear this kind of popping, banging noise, and someone's covered in gunk. And the funny thing was, one of my friends, he was sat just where Jez was there, right? And he starts pointing, and he starts laughing. And you know when someone laughs, and their head has literally gone up here, his mouth was wide open, and he was uncontrollably laughing. And you know what happens, right? There's a big pop. He's covered in gunk as well. And why do I say that? Well, that's kind of what's happening in Jonah chapter 4. So what's happening is that the, the way the book works, we're meant to laugh at Jonah. Jonah's writing the book to make us laugh at him. But as we're laughing at him, we're pointing and we're laughing, and suddenly we realise the gunk that we're laughing at that we can see on him is on us. The sin... The difficulties, the frailties, the failures that Jonah has, really, it's a mirror, right? And it's hold up, and it's looking at us, and there are failures, our sins, our weaknesses. And as a result this morning, the way I'm going to divide the sermon up is into two halves. The first half is going to be doing us doing a point in laughing at Jonah. And the second part is going to be kind of experiencing that kind of gunk landing on us as we realise, as we realise it's actually us. It's our failures, it's our sins, right? And I just want to make a little detour before I do that and just say, look, there is something a little bit uncomfortable about critique and a Bible character, and I know some people here may feel uncomfortable about that. 
I think we've got to be conscious of two things at that point. The first thing is that actually the characters in the Bible, they're like you and me, right? They've got the same frailties, the same weaknesses we have, and they're not written as examples for us to follow. The second thing is just the way Jonah's written. So we've got to bear in mind these things are written because one way or another, Jonah was involved in the writing of Jonah, right? Otherwise, how would it be written? He's written it for a purpose, and it's written in a style, I and mean, it's a satirical style, but it's written in a style which is meant to make us laugh at him. That's the whole point of it. If you get to the end of Jonah and you're not laughing at Jonah, you've not read it right, or I've not preached it right. You've, that, that's the way it's written. So let's, let's, start with, let's start with a belly laugh. Let's try and get that going. So um, the ing- I'm going to talk about endings, right? So this is... This is four in a series of four, right? So last one, if you're here, in chapter three. Jonah chapter three has a perfect ending to the book. So if you look at chapter three, verse 10, it says this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. It's talking about the Ninevites, okay? So when God saw what the Ninevites, Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of a disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, if... At that point, that should be the perfect ending for the book. If it's a film, right, at that point, you've got the screen's fading, right? You've got the credits rolling. Everything's wrapped up. So we've got Jonah's, Jonah's preached to the Ninevites. The Ninevites are evil, right, and they've repented. God's forgiven them, and God has relented of a disaster that he's said he was going to do. So there's, there's nothing left, right? But what happens in Jonah is the camera, if you will, the camera does this sudden jolt. It doesn't pan, it jolts. And it doesn't jolt to the people in Nineveh who were celebrating their forgiveness. It doesn't celebrate the God who was in command of all this. It jolts to Jonah. And it jolts to Jonah's stupidity. And, but before we go through that, I just want to talk about the idea of endings. And... The idea of what is a perfect ending, right? And, you know, when we, anyone who watches films, right, you can have an odd debate what the perfect film ending is, right? I've, 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 I've voted, I'm voting for the Railway Children this morning, which is a bit soft, right? But I'm going to go for the Railway Children. So, you know, if, if you've not watched the Railway Children, right, it's about a family. And the, family, the family's dad is in prison. And it's about how they, how they get by in life, how they, more than get by, how they make the most of life without him. And at the end of the film, Bobby, who's the daughter, she's, she's up there on the screen in that picture on the left. And she goes to the railway station. And that was one of the things they did in the film. I guess the clue's in the title, right? But she, she goes down to the railway station. And she's puzzled because as she walks down the railway station, there's all these people congratulating her, shaking hands, joyful. And one of them's the, one of them's the station master, a guy called Perkson. As this is happening, a train pulls into the station. Now, this, this is the old days, right? And it's a steam train. And the steam train, there's steam, there's smoke everywhere. And she's looking down the station. And all she can see is the steam and the smoke. And then it, it starts to clear. And she starts to see the outline of a figure. And then it clears more. And she can see it's not any old figure. This is her father. Her father who's been released from prison. Turns out he'd been, well, he'd been wrongfully imprisoned, right? And he's released. And, and she, she, she utters those immortal, you know, those, those famous words, Daddy, it's my daddy. And she runs, I'm not going to run, but she runs and gives him a book hug. And that's the picture on the right. And then 
Then they walk back to the house, and th this is a bit that cracks me up, right? It, 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 emotionally, right? So they walk back to the house, and, and the father goes up the stairs, and he, he goes alone, and you can see him and the wife upstairs. And Bobby's, Bobby's outside, the house is there, Bobby's here, right? And she holds back, she puts her arm like that to the two um, brother and, younger brother and sister, saying, you know, don't go in. And, you know, she can see him telling them what's happened. And she, she's leaving, leaving the parents to reunite. And then there's this voiceover, and I'm, I'm glad to read it word for word because, you know, it, it's a beautiful voiceover. It says this. This is Bobby. She's speaking to the audience. I think just now we're not wanted there, not for a few minutes anyway. I think it would be best for us to go quickly and quietly. We'll go to the end of a field among the thin gold spikes of grass. We may just take one last look over our shoulders at the house where neither we nor anyone else is wanted now. <laughs> yeah. You watch it and you think, what a perfect ending, you know. I, I, I've read about seven times to prep and I still, it still gets me a little bit, you know. And, but imagine, you know, as we come to John, imagine if that wasn't the last scene. Imagine if the last scene was the camera jolts, it's not panning right, it jolts up to the upstairs room and you get to see what happens between the father and the wife. And the wife's saying to the father, I never wanted you back. I wish you were still in prison. Do you know what? I had a great time with the kids on my own. And then she storms out. She slams the door, storms out. And she looks out the window, looking for the police, hoping that they might change their mind and go and arrest him. And of course, that's a terrible ending, right? And that we'd hate it. But that's, we've got to get, that's what's going on in Jonah. And it, look, it's not quite the same, is it? But it, it's the same. Emotionally, it's exactly the same thing. We've reached this wonderful happy ending to the story in chapter 3, and Jonah goes and ruins it in chapter 4. It's a crunch of gears, right, as we go to chapter 4, verse 1. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, and 2 as well. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste sorry, to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, <laughs> slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God's forgiven, right? God's forgiven his terrible people, and that's his response. Everyone should be jumping up and down for joy. Jonah should be made up. But he's angry. He's not even, the passage doesn't even leave us any doubt of his emotions. He's not a little bit upset. It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. You know, look again at, um, yeah, look at jo again at Jonah's statement in verse 2 and 3. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. He says, you know, he says the reason he, <laughs> the reason he flew, he, he fleed from God was because he knew he'd forgiven Ninevites. He complains at God for being merciful, for being gracious, for being slow to anger, for relenting from disaster and he doesn't realize does he what's going on that the qualities these qualities of God which he's complaining about haven't just saved the Ninevites they've saved him he's here this terrible awful prophet complaining at God and he doesn't get it the God who saved the Ninevites is the same God who saved him and then then what he does is goes into a childlike tantrum and he says this. He says, 
Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And, you know, this is like end of a day when you try to get your kids off the screen and they go, I am having the most awful day. This is the worst day of my life. I can't believe you're taking me off the screen. Just childlike. I mean, it's worse than that, isn't it? You know, God says, God's, God's rescued the Ninevites. And Jonah says, well, actually, if you're not going to kill them, kill me. And there's a huge irony here, isn't there? Because why is it that Jonah's not, Jonah's not dead? Why is it Jonah isn't, you know, we jump back to chapter 1 stroke chapter 2, right? And Jonah should be at the bottom of the ocean and God had rescued him. Why is it that he's not at the bottom of the ocean? Well, God is gracious. God is uh, steadfast love. God is compassionate. God relents from disaster, right? The thing Jonah accuses God of is the very thing which not just saved the Ninevites, but saved him. And then in verse 4, Jonah then goes, do you know what, I've had enough of this conversation, full stop, and he walks, and he, you know, if that's the city, he walks, he walks away from the city, and he stands on the edge, of, I say stands, he sits, he finds this place to sit on the edge of a city, and he's looking out over it. And what he's doing, similar to, you know, when I said the, the, the mother and the railway children looking out for the police, he's doing that. He's looking out, what he's doing is he's hoping that God will change his mind and will destroy the city after all. And what happens next is that God grows a plant. And you've got to bear in mind, this is a really hot country. It's not like, not like egg buff, right? It's a hot country, and he grows this plant, and this plant provides him with shade. It provides him with comfort. And in the midst of Jonah's sulking, his frustration, this plant gives Jonah huge joy. If you look at verse 6, it says this, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. Now, if you look at the language, the words being used, there's this kind of juxtaposition going on, where we've got, on one hand, Jonah exceedingly glad because of a plant, and on the other hand, Jonah exceedingly upset about the people being saved. A contrast, right? But Jonah's joy, this exceeding gladness, doesn't last, because God appoints a worm. Now, I always read it as if the worm ate the plant, which I guess would be a miracle in itself. But actually, what the, what the worm does is it attacks the plant and then the plant withers. Um, and what's effectively happening is this worm, and I, keep, I, keep to, I want to describe it as a little worm, but it doesn't say it's a little worm, so we'll just say it's a worm. We don't know if it's a big worm or a little worm. But the worm, it attacks, it attacks this plant. And basically what it's doing is it's destroying at that point Jonah's hopes, his dreams. He's, he's wrapped them all up in this little plant. So much so that he says, he goes into another of his little tantrums and he says... It is better for me to die than to live. Now, it's at this point that we start, to, we start to hinge in the passage. We start to pivot. We start to get ourselves into hot water. Because up until now, what we've become consumed and overwhelmed with is Jonah's stupidity. We've become overwhelmed with actually how sinful how wrong Jonah is and it's right if we're all thinking that that's right because that's what the passage is trying to get us to but we can't you know we can't just sit there on the sidelines pointing and laughing because we have to do that but we also have to realize that there's a mirror being held up here and that finger that we're pointing is actually pointing straight back at us and the weaknesses that we see in Jonah are actually in ourselves and what, what I'd like to do is hard because I can't in some ways, I can only hold the mirror up to myself, right? I can't hold it to you guys. But my hope is that by telling you two ways that I think I am like Jonah, 
it may help you and see how you're like Jonah 2, if that makes sense. So the first one is this. About the right point now. Um, my emotions are linked to how my life is going. So my emotions are linked to how my life is going. So I, I've done this kind of direct correlation between how I feel and how my life is. So if you look at verse 4 and 9, what you see going on is God is questioning the validity of Jonah's anger, Jonah's emotions, right? Um, God says, you are angry for the wrong things. You're angry because I'm saving a people you don't like. You were angry because I've taken your comfort away. You know, I was, you were exceedingly glad when you had this plant. You were exceedingly upset when the plant goes. And the question I have to ask, and probably we all have to ask, is what is it which is driving my emotions? What is it that's driving your emotions? Do I get, do I get more upset about things which affect my own comfort and my own plans? Or do I get more upset when I see people not responding to the gospel? You see, I, get, I, did, I know the answer to that. <laughs> it's not a difficult question. I know the answer to that. I get really, really upset when my life doesn't go too well, when my plans don't work out, when, when, my, you know, when my idol's under threat, when my career's not going to plan, when I forget to fix the electricity and gas, when the mortgage payment goes up, when... I can't watch footy on the Sunday afternoon. When I look out the window, there's this patch where all the weeds grow in the garden. You know, it's all, these are all, these are the plants growing right, which are being attacked by the worm. You know, but how many times can I honestly say I've got depressed about all the people in Liverpool who haven't heard the gospel? How many times have I got upset about the people who, you know, who haven't heard or haven't responded or who have rejected the gospel. You see, I think what's happened is I've got used to a lie which exists in our society. And the lie is this, that my emotions are always valid. You see, I think I'm used to, used to validating my feelings, my emotions, how I feel. I'm used to thinking it's okay for me to feel emotional because God has made me like this, God has made me emotional. But what if, and I think this is the point, what if I'm being emotional about all the wrong things? Look at what God says to Jonah in verse 4. Do you well, do well to be angry? It's not a question, he's saying you're not doing well, right? You shouldn't be angry. Verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Implication, no, you shouldn't be angry for the plant. What if, what if God made me emotional, not so I should be angry about the plant and about my comfort, but I should be angry or upset or emotional about the people who haven't heard the gospel, the people he cares about? What if I should be upset about the people who don't respond? Second thing I've learned God cares more about saving the lost than my comfort. Now, for the, yeah. I guess we've got to be under no illusion here, right? So if, if you could kind of rewind in your minds, I don't know how easy that is to do, but to Jonah chapter 3 on the sermon, when we're talking about the Ninevites, and I described them as being like Nazi Germany, because, and, the, and the idea of Nazi Germany having ruled the Western world, right? Because that, that's broadly the equivalent of what they were as, as far as we know. Now, if, 
it's a horrible thought, but just imagine if Nazi Germany was ruling the Western world, it was ruling this country, right? And if God had promised to destroy them, I'd be praying for him to destroy them, right? I'd be praying for our, our independence. At Connect Group, my prayers would be dominated by, please wipe out this nation. But it's really striking that God doesn't judge the evil in Ninevites, he saves them. And we can't have a cop out here, because within a few generations, the Ninevites were back doing what they were doing. But he saves them. And, And why is that? Well, the reason I think is this, that God is more concerned about saving souls than he is about making this world a nice place to live. God's more concerned about saving souls than he is making this world a nice place to live. And that's a lesson I really need to learn, and it might be a lesson that you need to learn too. You know, God, God was prepared to allow a nation like the Ninevites, like, like the Nazis effectively, to rule if it meant people would be saved, souls would be saved for the gospel. And I think in my life, I think, in my, I, I think of a world operating, it shows how self-centered I am in terms of two plans. There's one kind of general plan, which God asks for salvation, which is all to do with saving people and bringing to himself. And then I view this specific plan God asks for me. And in this specific plan God asks for me, my life generally works out okay, and there's ups and downs, but it's generally all right. And it kind of fits with this broader plan, but it's a specific plan that looks after me. Now, you know, God has looked after me, right? And in his grace, he cares about us all individually. But he doesn't have two plans. He has one plan, right? And his single plan is to bring all people to himself, to save souls for eternity. And it might be that that plan involves a worm coming and attacking the plant that gives me comfort. It might involve a worm coming and attacking a plant that gives you comfort. And at that point, what we can't do is question like Jonah, God, why have you done that? We have to accept that God has one plan. He has one plan to save people. And, you know, I I don't know, I I find that difficult because I'm not sure I'm okay with it really because if, if God's salvation plan involves a worm damaging my family unity, nibbling at my career hopes, biting my home comforts or status importance, you know, any, any of those things, right? I don't know I feel great about that. But I do have to remember, and we all have to remember, right, God only has one plan. And our comfort is not his primary objective. Okay, let's, let's finish with where Jesus is um, in this passage. Now, I'm going to I'm going to, you don't have to turn to it, but I'm going to jump to Psalm 103 because I think, I think that draws it out. Now, as I read, I'm going to read one verse from Psalm 103, verse 8. And as I read it, what you'll hear is the same words that we've seen in Jonah chapter 4. These are, bizarrely, these are the words that Jonah accused God of. It says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities or sin. Right? Um, now, there's something missing from Jonah chapter 4, specifically there's something missing from Jonah chapter 4 about how, um, how God talks, speaks about the Ninevites. And what, what is missing is he doesn't mention their sin. He doesn't even mention forgiveness or repentance. And you've got to ask, why is that? 
Because clearly that was, you know, for all of us, that was a defining characteristic of these people. Well, the answer, I think, is in, in, in the following verses of Psalm 103, when we look at verse 11 and verse 12, and it says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is this steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You can see what's happening. The Lord Jesus has covered over the Ninevite sin. He's covered over Jonah's sin. He's covered over my sin, your sin, right? If you're trusting him. He's covered over it and he's taken it away. And he's wrapped them in the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus' righteousness. So that when God looks at the Ninevites, what he actually sees is the Lord Jesus. And it's yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to believe, right? And I think, as a close, and as a close, not just this sermon, but this, I guess, this series on Jonah, I think, if we remember anything from the book of Jonah, I think we should remember this. Jesus isn't like Jonah. Jesus isn't like me. He's not like you. He doesn't He's not concerned about treating us as we deserve. He's not, he doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He doesn't keep a record of mistakes or sins. He's, he's, like, he's, like, he's like a loving father whose arms are open. A loving father who runs towards his children and wraps them up. It's like a loving father who, when the child, when we, when we right, speak and say what we've done wrong, he just puts his hand, his finger over our lips and says, you know, your, your mistakes are for, forgotten and forgiven. And I think if you trusted the Lord Jesus this morning, I think the lesson is take comfort, take rest. Not in, not in the world, right? Not in the plants, which grow and provide the leafy shade over you. But take comfort in the Lord Jesus, who's taken your sins away. And if you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus this morning, what on earth are you doing? Let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, um, your word is difficult, your word is challenging, and... I, and probably we, all fall short of wanting our own comfort over wanting your plans. And we want, to, we want to ask for your forgiveness for that. But more than that, we want to be joyful in the Lord Jesus. Joyful in the Lord Jesus who saved us um, and loved us and taken us in so far away that like the Ninevites, you can no longer see our sin. Amen.